0: Scripture is from Matthew 25, verses 1 through, 12, through 13. The kingdom of heaven is like what happened one night when ten girls took their oil lamps and went to a wedding to meet the groom. Five of the girls were foolish, and five were wise. The foolish ones took their lamps, but no extra oil the ones who were wise took along extra oil for their lamps. The groom was late arriving, and the girls became drowsy and fell asleep. Then in the middle of the night, someone shouted, here's the groom, come to meet him. When the girls got up and started getting their lamps ready, the foolish ones said to the others, let us have some of your oil, our lamps are going out. The girls who were wise answered, There's not enough oil for all of us. Go and buy some for yourselves." While the foolish girls were on their way to get some oil, the groom arrived. The girls who were ready went into the wedding and the doors were closed. Later, the other girls returned and shouted, "'Sir, sir, open the door for us!' But the groom replied, "'I don't even know you.'" So my disciples, always be ready You don't know the day or the time when all this will happen. This is the word of the Lord.
1: I thought one way to begin tonight, uh, we have maybe four or five more sermons in the first part of uh, uh, this series on pursuing oneness in a theologically diverse church. Uh, I thought we'd do a little bit of, of church history here, if we could pull up that slide, and uh, I'll try to touch on this a little bit in the nights that we have remaining. Uh, I don't know how well you can see that, but uh, hopefully you can. Uh, The first great division in the church uh, comes in the 11th century. And with all, as with all breakups, the causes of this first ecclesiastical divorce are complicated. I won't go into all of them, but The Latin-speaking Western churches and the Greek-speaking Eastern churches uh, were very different family members from the very, very beginning. The cultures were different. The language was different. The thought forms were different. Uh, The West was more practical in its theology. The East was more mystical. The West thought about theology in terms of Roman law. The East thought about theology in terms of liturgy. They emerged in different cultural contexts and from the very early on, the churches that lived in places we'd call like Greece and Turkey uh, and the churches that lived in Rome, what we call Rome and Italy and France and England began to be very suspicious of each other. Well, in the 6th century, uh, the Western church added a clause to the Nicene Creed that the whole church had worked so hard to put together. And the clause had to do with the Spirit proceeding from the Father and the Son. The Greek word for and the Son is filioque, and this is known as the filioque controversy. Well, the Eastern Church rightly was incensed because the whole idea of consensual orthodoxy was we come together to find consensus about what orthodoxy is. And in the 6th century, the Western Church made a doctrinal decision without asking the Eastern Church. Well, things declined from there. The Eastern Church became very resentful of the Bishop of Rome's claim to rule the entire church, and Rome wanted to put the East firmly under its thumb. It all came to a head in the year 10,054 when an ambassador of the Pope, Cardinal Umbert, Tried to force Patriarch Aurelius to submit to Rome's authority. And the Patriarch refru- refused to do that. The humiliated cardinal marched into the great church Hagia Sophia, uh, put a bull of excommunication on the altar, shook his feet off, and uh, the dust off his feet, and left. And the Eastern Church has been divided from the Western Church ever since. There were some initial efforts to reconcile, but any hopes of reconciliation were doomed after Pope Urban II launched the First Crusade. He said that he wanted to free the Holy Land, but along the way, his armies murdered their brothers in Christ, the Arab Christians. Two centuries later, in the Fourth Crusade, the Crusaders invaded Constantinople, which was the center of the Eastern Church. And a leading, leading historian of the Crusades says this is what happened next. When the leading crusaders were established in the great palace, their soldiers were told that they might spend the next three days in pillage. The sack of Constantinople is unparalleled in history. For nine centuries, the great city had been the capital of Christian civilization, but the crusaders were filled with a lust of destruction. They rushed in a howling mob down the streets and through the houses, snatching up everything that glittered and destroying what they could not carry, pausing only to murder or rape. Wounded women and children lay dying on the streets. For three days, the ghastly scenes of pillage and bloodshed continued till the huge and beautiful city was in shambles. Christ prayed that his followers would be one, and this perhaps is Christ's. Great unanswered prayer. And the Eastern and the Western church disagreed on some very important fundamental teachings. And at the end, they chose to prioritize a doctrinal agreement over unity, and they divided. And so what we've been working on this winter is asking this question, how can a church uh, pursue doctrinal purity and relational oneness at the same time. And here's how we have answered the question. Uh, All Souls wants to be a church where Christians who disagree about important questions of biblical interpretation can live together in loving unity. We strive towards this vision by affirming the Nicene Creed while respecting, challenging, and learning from our brothers and sisters who interpret the Bible differently on non-credal issues. Well, this winter we're working line by line to the creed so we can understand what it is we all believe in common. And tonight we will consider this phrase, He shall come again with glory to judge the quick and the dead whose kingdom shall have no end. Now, I'd like to start by by taking a moment and reviewing with you what the Bible says about Christ's role as judge. The Christ of the Scriptures is both Savior and Judge. The Gospel announces salvation and warns of judgment. Salvation is ultimately deliverance from judgment. I don't like to talk about judgment. Most preachers today don't. But we find judgment a major theme in Scripture... Uh, For example, in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus tells 148 stories, 60 of them deal with final judgment. The rest of the New Testament echoes this firm belief that Christ will return to judge the living and the dead. For example, Paul tells the people of Athens, God has set a day when he will judge the world's people with fairness. And he has chosen the man Jesus to do the judging for him. And Paul writes to the Corinthians, Don't judge anyone until the Lord returns. He will show what is hidden in the dark and what's in everyone's heart. Christ will judge each of us for the good and the bad we do while living in these bodies. The Apostle John has a vision of the judgment. I saw a great white throne with someone sitting on it. Earth and heaven tried to run away, but there was no place for them to run. I also saw all the dead standing in front of the throne. Every one of them was there, no matter who they'd once been. Several books were opened, and then the book of life was opened. The dead were judged by what these books said they'd done. The sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and its kingdom also gave up their dead. Then everyone was judged by what they had done. Afterwards, death and its kingdom were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death. Anyone whose name wasn't written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. God has delegated the role of judge to his son. Jesus says the father doesn't judge anyone, but he has made his son to judge everyone. Now, we have said that the creed summarizes the good news of the gospel. Where is the good news in the church's belief that Jesus will come again to judge? The good news is this. The judge himself is judged in our place on the cross. Paul put it like this. Christ never sinned, but God treated him as a sinner so that Christ could make us acceptable to God. The judge judges men and women based on their works. Every man and woman have fallen short of God's perfect standard. No one is innocent before God. The good news is that Jesus Christ has paid the penalty for our failures for us. And so anyone who trusts in Christ has no fear of the final judgment. Jesus says, everyone who hears my message and has faith in the one who has sent me has eternal life and will never be condemned. Paul says flatly, if you belong to Jesus Christ, you will not be punished. Believers have died with Christ. Therefore, we have already been through judgment with Christ as our representative. Christ has Paid the penalty for our sins, and the penalty cannot be applied again. No wrath and condemnation remain for Christians, writes Michael Bird. Christ has drained it all away like poison sucked from a clean wound. The cross of Christ is like the wings of a hen that shields its young from the flames of a barnyard fire. Tragically, the same cannot be said of those who approach the judgment apart from the cross. Judgment is facing God without the cross. Bird continues, The tragedy of the final judgment is that men and women will stand before the judgment of God without the shield of the cross to protect them because they do not carry the insignia of the cross, namely faith in the crucified and risen Lord. Well, if Christians are not to be judged, what does the return of our Lord as judge mean for us? Well, Jesus told a story to help us answer that question. And it's the story that uh, we just read tonight. The setting is a Palestinian wedding. And Palestinian weddings were like ours in some ways and different than ours in some ways, it appears that all brides throughout all history have enjoyed inviting their friends to participate in the wedding. And one of the things that you did in those days was you got people to hold the lamp. And uh, normally they would be young girls. And the reason why is something like this. A Palestinian wedding could go a long time. Eventually the groom would come to the bride's house to get her. If the groom came in the middle of the night, you wanted to have these young girls holding these oil lamps up to guide the groom to the bride. But, of course, these were not electric. They they were based on a, a small amount of oil, and they would go out about every hour. So if you were prepared for the wedding, you would bring a flask of extra oil so you could keep the flame burning all night long. Jesus says that five of the girls were wise and five of the girls were foolish. In other words, half of the girls were prepared and half of the girls were not prepared for the groom's coming. Now, by describing half of the wedding party as unprepared... Jesus introduced an unsettling tension into this wedding story. The wedding story will be both a tragedy and a comedy. The groom is late. He's delayed. The groom we know is Jesus. We know because there are many other stories where the Lord uses the groom as a symbol of the Son of Man. We also know because Jesus is talking about his return in this portion of Scripture, and he's telling several stories to illustrate it. A few verses before, he has taught the disciples. Uh, by quoting from the book of Daniel about the coming of the Son of Man and applying it to himself, Jesus tells the disciples, a sign will appear in the sky and there will be the Son of Man and all nations will weep when they see the Son of Man coming with power and great glory. And he tells the disciples that they won't know what time it will be. He says, no one knows the day or the hour. The angels in heaven don't know. The Son himself doesn't know. Only the fathers know. So the teachings around this little story, sometimes we call these stories parables, the teachings around it tell us uh, the main themes, the main images. Jesus is the late arriving groom. Who's the, who are the girls? The church are the girls. You and I are the girls. We are the ones waiting for the return of, Christ. And as you're listening to the story, as I'm sure it would have been to the early readers, the story becomes even more unsettling when you realize it's about you. It's about me. It's about the church. And half of them aren't prepared. Well, all of the girls fall asleep as they wait for the groom. The wise girls fall asleep. The foolish girls fall asleep. Jesus isn't condemning resting here. Uh, This detail in the story just communicates waiting for the Lord. Being faithful and living for Christ as we await his coming can be exhausting. And there is no sin in that. Raising young children is exhausting. Battling an eating disorder is exhausting. Fighting for your marriage is exhausting. Caring for an aging parent is exhausting. Starting a business is exhausting. Embracing loneliness is exhausting. Living with chronic pain is exhausting. Jesus knows this. And he talks about this long delay of waiting for the return of the Lord. And he understands that we will grow weary as we wait. There's no shame in weariness. But some wait better than others. The groom finally arrives in the middle of the night. Somebody says, here comes the groom. Come and meet him. The wise girls light their lamp. They've got their extra oil. They go out. They make the row. They get ready for the groom to come in. But the uh, the, the foolish girls are not prepared at all. And they panic. And they begin to, to cry out, Where am I going to get this extra oil to get ready? They're not prepared. What does it mean to not be prepared for the groom? Well, Jesus says, brilliant storyteller. He doesn't explain all of his symbols. But by the end of the story, we understand that the foolish girls are rejected for a certain reason. They didn't know him. They did not have a relationship with him. And so they weren't prepared. Now, I think if you've been to a wedding lately, you might appreciate this. I mean, let's be honest. Some weddings are fun. Some are not. Uh, We all know the difference. Suppose you are invited to the wedding of of one of your very best friends. And uh, the groom posts all sorts of tools that he would like on the registry. And they're expensive. Uh, They're expensive. Things that... Uh, people are giving for weddings these days have increased in value. And so they're, they're expensive. And you love the groom, though. So you go over it, you don't have a lot of money, and you look down the red and he's got this big tool he wants, and, and you pray about it, and you decide, you know, I love him, we went to school together, he's a good friend, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pay for this tool and bring it to the wedding. And so you bring it to the wedding, and you get there, and you rush to the reception, you're excited to see him, but he's late. But you love him, and you spend a lot of money on the tool. And so you stay. You're prepared for this wedding. You want to be there. Because you have a relationship with the groom. But suppose you're invited to a wedding of someone you don't really know. Has that ever happened to you? <laughs> you get it in the mail and you think, I, I wonder why I'm invited to this wedding. <laughs> you know, Is it the registry? They just kind of want to fill up the box. I don't know. And uh, and so you go on, and and there's kind of some social things going on, and you plug in, and you see this guy's got all these expensive things he wants, and you're thinking 150 bucks for for a widget, and and you're frustrated, but you feel like you need to go, so you get the gift, and you and you go there, uh, and 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 tragically the wedding is scheduled for the exact time your team is playing in the tournament, Um, so you sit in the very back and you watch the tournament on your phone during the wedding. And, uh, yes, this happens every wedding I do. When the groom is late, arriving to the reception, you head to the bar and you catch the game and you miss the groom coming in. Why? Well, you don't really know him. You don't really love him. You don't care that much about the wedding. See, the foolish girls are, are, are kind of like the guy in the bar watching the game. Um... They don't really love the groom. That's why they're not prepared. They're not looking forward to him coming. They don't know him. The best way to prepare to meet Jesus tomorrow is to make sure that you know him today. And when you know him, You look forward to his coming with longing and hope. When you don't know him, if you think about his coming at all, you think about it with confusion and dread. My first job was working as a maintenance man at the Worthington Swimming Pool. I was fourteen. And I was the youngest guy on the staff. And the first day I got there, I wanted to make a good impression. I scampered around uh, cleaning up trash and hosing down bathrooms and hauling around chlorine. And towards the end of the day, one of the older guys grabbed me he said, Come here. His, I think his name was Tim. Now, I remember this moment for some reason very clearly. And he sat me down in the back of the uh, of the of kind of the pool house there. And he said, i you, I got to make one thing clear to you. He says, This has got to stop. I said, What? Got to say. He says, this working all day thing, you are making us look really bad. Um, he, he said, the principal is LB. Maybe this is in your job, too. I said, what is LB? When he took me out. He pointed me to Mr. Howell's office. Now, Mr. Howell was the manager of the pool, and you could see him across the pool. And he said, when Mr. Howell leaves the office and can see you, look busy. But the rest of the shift don't work. And that was kind of how the pool operated, is that uh, if we were afraid of being caught by the boss, we would LB, we would look busy. Well, sometimes I think we think of Jesus as Mr. Howell. Um We don't care much for him or think much about him, but sometimes we look busy if we think he might be looking our way. But that is not really preparing for Jesus. Uh, Preparing for Jesus' falling in love with Jesus. Well, the the foolish girls panic. Uh, And and honestly, the more I studied this this week, the darker the story became. This is a hard word, and I, I don't particularly enjoy bringing it. The foolish girls, representing some of us cry out, let us have some of your oil, our lamps are going out. But the, the wise girls don't share, and they go out into the dark, which in the ancient world was a very terrifying metaphor, uh, to find more oil. And I think the principle is this. You cannot borrow a relationship with God from someone else. You can have secondhand dress, but you can't have secondhand faith. Your faith has to be your own. You can't live off your dad's faith or your pastor's faith or your grandmother's faith. You have to have your own. And this is the point where this little wedding story moves from unsettling to terrifying. If the ten girls represent the church waiting for the return of her Lord, then this presents the possibility that some in the church who meet him will meet him without a personal relationship with him. And it will be too late to borrow faith from someone else. Then Jesus brings this little wedding story to a climax. While the foolish girls were on their way to get some oil, the groom arrived. The girls who were ready went into the wedding, and the doors were closed. Later, the other girls returned and shouted, Sir, sir, open the door! Open the door for us! But the groom replied, I don't even know you. Of all the words of Jesus, uh, those are the ones that bothered me the most. I just can't imagine him saying that. As a matter of fact, as I studied it this week, I found that this was a harsh rabbinical idiom for rejecting a disciple who was no longer to be a part of the company of the rabbi. But that's what he said. And you can't read this story, if you're familiar with the Gospel of Matthew at all, without remembering another shocking ending at the Sermon on the Mount, at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. Not everyone who calls me their Lord will get into the kingdom of heaven. Only the ones who obey my Father in heaven will get in. On the day of judgment, many will call me their Lord. They will say, We preached in your name, and in your name we forced out demons and worked many miracles. But I will tell them, I'll have nothing to do with you. Get out of my sight, you evil people. Those are hard, hard words. Frederick Bruner puzzles over this in an excellent commentary on Matthew's Gospel. He says, they own Jesus and Jesus disowns them. They work for him and He separates himself from them. What can this mean? Does it not seem to mitigate the mercy that we are coming to associate with the person of Jesus? We learn from this story that it's possible to work for Jesus and yet not work under him. We can be intoxicated by the power of Christ's person and yet be indifferent or even hostile to keeping his hard commands where they pinch us. It is strangely possible to serve and even glorify Christ and yet an actual life not to obey him? Jesus wants disciples whom he can know, that is, over whom he can be Lord? Well, when you put these two hard sayings together, And you ask the question, what does it mean to be prepared? What does it mean to have enough oil in the lamp? I think it means that you know Jesus Christ in an authentic way that results in a life of humble, patient obedience to the will of God. And in Matthew 7, Jesus seems to be speaking to people who have become rather fascinated with sensational experiences with the Spirit, healings and miracles and casting out demons. And, and I believe that those are good things, and I think Jesus thinks those are good things. But in this passage, Jesus seems to be calling rather for a long obedience in the same direction. Again, Bruner puts it brilliantly. He says, the fruits Jesus commanded in this sermon are much less sensational and much simpler, revering Scripture's commands, the casting out of one's anger, the miracles of sexual purity and marital fidelity, the heart that extends itself even to persecutors and enemies. So what does it mean to be prepared for the return of the Lord? It means to know him, to have a relationship with him that overflows in a life of faithful obedience. So, Jesus says at the end of his troubling wedding story, always be ready. Do you know him? It's a good time to ask. Not, do you know him perfectly? Do you know him absolutely? Do you never... I'm not asking that. I'm just asking. Do you know him? Do you have a relationship with him? Have you asked him to forgive you of your sins, to come into your life, to make you the kind of person that he wants you to be in a, in a community like this? Have you done that? Is that at any level real for you? Or have you been trying to borrow your wife's oil or your dad's or your preacher's? Bible tells us how to know Jesus Romans 10:9 If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe that God raised him from the dead you shall be saved So maybe one reason the groom delays is that so more can come to know him Well, what are we saying when we recite together this line in the creed? He shall come again with glory to judge the quick and the dead, whose kingdom shall have no end. Cyril of Jerusalem offers a good summary. We preach not one advent only of Christ, but a second also, far more glorious than the first. We are saying we believe Christ will come to judge the living and the dead. We are saying that we believe judgment is facing God at the cross, that those who cling to Christ in faith have no fear of the final judgment. We are also saying that believers must still be prepared for his return And the way that we prepare to meet the Lord tomorrow is to cultivate an abiding relationship with Him today. If this relationship is real, we will obey Him faithfully, but not perfectly, in the long, weary days between already and not yet. Let's pray.